In the classic Simpsons episode, You Only Move Twice, Homer gets a taste of wealth and success. He's hired to be an executive at a power plant in a new city, and at first, everything seems to be going great. The family gets a big new house. Homer's salary and social status increase. He's the go-to guy. But by the end of the 20 minutes, all is not well. Marge and the kids suffer in the new location, and Homer's boss turns out to be a Bond-style supervillain bent on world domination. As the episode closes, the Simpsons return back home and their lives are able to pick back up from where they left off, a little the worse for wear. Now, last week we saw Abraham begin his walk of faith. I've given up trying to call him Abram, so we're just gonna call him Abraham. He began his walk of faith last week. He traveled through the land of Canaan, sort of from the north to the south. This was the land that God promised to Abraham's descendants. And his story is full of moments where his faith is tested. Our faith is going to be tested too as we walk with the Lord, not because God is cruel or because he's insecure in some way, but because he continually refines and toughens and trues our faith, bringing us forth as gold, we're told, pure and enduring, malleable, and beautifully reflective of God's glory. Now, As we'll see time and again, Abraham wasn't perfect. That's great news because we aren't perfect either. And as we dedicate ourselves to trust God and follow him in this walk of faith, we are able to learn from the examples of those who came before us and learn from the lessons that they learned in real time. Now, one of those lessons is set before us tonight and we begin in verse 10. There was a famine in the land, speaking of Canaan, So Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine was in the land and was severe. Famines were a common feature of these lands in the Bible. They are particularly problematic when you live in a time with no reliable food storage solutions. And more importantly, when you have lots of flocks and herds that need to graze. Abraham is gonna make some significant mistakes in this story. That isn't to say that this wasn't a serious problem, it was. Uh, So we're gonna have to critique a lot of what he does because this is a, a major blunder in his life and the Bible doesn't shy away from exposing the faults and the flaws of the characters within it. Uh, And so we are gonna critique what he did, but that's not to say that this wasn't a real problem. The sheep needed food today. The people in his household, it wasn't just him and his wife and Lot. Uh, We were told that he left Haran with lots of other people. And so there's a significant group of people, tons of flocks and herds, and they needed food today. And Abraham was responsible for this group. The pressure was real. The options were limited. Given the circumstances, Abraham made the decision to leave the land of promise and instead go down to Egypt. You see, Canaan geographically uh, is dependent on rainfall for crop growth and those sorts of things, grass growth. Whereas the land of Egypt had the stability of the Nile River to feed the land. Now, we can see that Abraham was trying to remain faithful on some level, but he was falling victim to a huge mistake in his decision-making process. Why do I say he's trying to remain faithful? Well, we see see into a corner of his mind there, it says he only intended to stay in Egypt for a while. 
And so he wasn't putting in a permanent change of address. He intended to come back. At least he was telling himself that. He knew that in the long run, he should not settle in Egypt, but in the land that God had shown him, the land of Canaan. But here was his mistake. His mistake was that he was only figuring in physical circumstances in his calculations. We don't see him go to his altar that he built in the last passage and petition the Lord. We don't see him travel north through the land of Canaan to try to find relief within the boundaries God had given him so far. Instead, we're seeing him using human reasoning to try to escape his problems. And it's not just true of Abraham's life. It is a consistent spiritual principle in the Bible that we need to apply to ourselves, that it is always a mistake to be driven in life by our earthly circumstances. If circumstances are determining which way you turn in life, it's not going to turn out well for you. God has called us as his people into a dynamic, living, love relationship with him. And he has gone on record as saying that, yes, you're going to face pressures and trials and difficulties in your life. Absolutely, for sure. But meanwhile, nothing can separate us from the love that God has for us. Not affliction, not distress, not persecution, not nakedness, not danger, not sword, not famine. It can't separate us from God's intentions for our lives, for God's will for our lives, for God's love for us as individuals. But to love God, our, our part, it means that we have to obey what he has said. Jesus said, hey, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. To love God means that we obey what he said and that we seek him instead of using our own seemingly logical schemes to live our lives. Because God knows the way forward and we so often do not. Even when we think we know the way forward, we can't possibly know everything that we need to know about a given situation. Why? Because we're finite beings in time and space. We can't look into the hearts of others. We can't look into the future. We can't even know our own selves in many ways. And that's why the Bible says very clearly, hey, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in its end is the way of death. And instead, we are invited to just submit to God and allow him to direct and guide us because he loves us and he's not gonna withhold any good thing from us, but we have to return, reciprocate that love with love of our own and love means obeying him and seeking him and allowing him to show us the way. Verse 11 says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Abraham has got it all figured out, doesn't he? First, he's, he's said to himself and undoubtedly to his group, okay, we're only gonna stay in Egypt for a while. We just gotta ride out the famine. Now, just before they cross the border, he pulls his wife aside and he explains the rest of his plan. By the way, maybe I didn't mention this over breakfast this morning, but there's something else here. He starts by telling her how beautiful she is. You husbands know, Right? So while this is an attempt to sell her on his strategy, uh, it's not that it was untrue. It's not untrue. In fact, Sarah was apparently fantastically, shockingly beautiful, uh, even in her mid-60s. We think she's probably about 65 years old at this point. But listen, beware anytime someone's buttering you up, whether that's your husband or not. They're buttering you up. Okay, okay, what's the rest of this? Show me the fine print on this plan. And here it is in verse 12. When the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife and they'll kill me, but let you live. 
Human reasoning can be so silly and stupid when we step back and really evaluate it. When we're doing the reasoning, it all makes so much sense and it all seems just so profound and so airtight. But if we step back and look at this sort of dispassionately as people who don't have to live under this pressure, how stupid is this? Here's what Abraham is saying. We have to go to Egypt so we don't die. Of course, when we get to Egypt, I'm most certainly going to die. Well, then why are you going to Egypt? Isn't there somewhere else that you could go? But listen, Abraham seems to be focused most of all on his flocks and herds. That's the conclusion we have to come to, that his wealth is his top priority at this point in his life. We can say that because we're gonna watch him trade his marriage for the security of these possessions of his. And so he's willing to leave the place God had led him to go, and he's willing to go to a place that he knows is full of pagan idolatry, a place that he himself considers to be incredibly dangerous, but he tells himself and his group, there will be water, and water means grass, and grass means the sheep will be okay, and that's what it's all about but what about the spiritual ramifications of this choice and of this move? What about the relational impact of this decision? What about the distance it creates between him and God's will and what God has revealed for him? What about those ramifications? He's really not thinking about any of those things. Now we can easily bring this up to date for modern application. We of course live in the land of opportunity in a time of great opportunity. You have lots of things that you could do, especially in comparison to someone like Abraham, right? Who's, he's a herdsman. He, the only places he can go are places he can walk to, right? He doesn't have a computer. He doesn't have modern conveniences. If he wants a well, he has to dig it himself, that kind of stuff. So compared to these characters in the Bible, I mean, we have all of the opportunities in the world. And you have a lot of things that you could do with your life. So learn this lesson from the Bible. Your career, your wealth, your social status, your achievement or power, those things are not worth losing your family or drifting out of the will of God. You may get an opportunity to do something that promises just a big payoff of one kind or another. But if it means that you have to sacrifice your family's spiritual health or your relationship with the Lord or some of these other more important things, then don't do it. The Bible gives us this example over and over and over again so that we can grab onto it and apply it to ourselves. Verse 13 says, Please say you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. So notice what's happening here. Abraham is dumping all of this onto his wife. All of the pressure and all of the responsibility and all the guilt is getting dumped onto Sarah. He says, listen, I'm gonna get killed, and the reason I'm gonna get killed is because of you. You're the reason why I'm gonna get killed, and so you need to join with me in this lie, and that is the only way that my life is gonna be saved. Now, while it was technically true that Sarah was Abraham's half-sister, the plan is clearly meant to deceive the people of Egypt. So, here's another easy modern-day application if you're married, for those of us who are married here tonight. If you're married, don't tempt your spouse. Help your spouse not to sin. 
Help them walk by faith. Be partners together in avoiding temptation and growing stronger together. Don't find ways to live separately or to pursue your own goals over you know, your relationship with your spouse, but you're meant to be one flesh together where you are making each other stronger and stronger. And help one another avoid temptation. Help one another avoid sin and avoid these schemes that are clearly ungodly. So Abraham says what? so that it will go well for us? No, no, he says, so it will go well for me. And again, we're seeing behind the curtain of what's kind of going on in his thought process here. But what about Sarah? How is it going to go for her? What's going to happen to her? Because of Abraham's focus, because it's on earthly things, he's forgotten his spiritual life for the moment, and he's willing to do things he knows he shouldn't do. Listen, every culture knows that it's wrong to lie. It's one of those moral constants written on, the, on our hearts, right? God's moral law. There are certain things that every culture recognizes, hey, you shouldn't do that. There, there's ways they get around it. You know, you get to a culture like the Spartans and they, man, they mute that moral law about as much as they can. But he knows he shouldn't be doing these things. He knows that he's putting his wife out front as a, a sort of human shield for himself. And this isn't the kind of man Abraham is. But this is what having our minds on the things of earth will do. It leads us to compromise. It leads us to do things that we would never do on paper, but under the pressure of the moment, under the pressure of circumstances or difficulties, we say, well, I guess I have to. He didn't have to. He's convinced himself he has to do it, and now he's trying to convince everyone else he has to do it, but he does not have to do this. It's a bad plan. Whose plan was it to go to Egypt? It was his plan. He says, well, man, to, to make up for the fact that we're going to this scary place, we gotta put this other plan in motion. It's all your plan. You're the one that wants to go there. You're the one that didn't consult God when you made this decision. You're the one that is now putting your loved ones in front of you as a shield. As Bruce Waltke puts it, Abraham's mentality at the moment became better defiled than dead. That's effectively what he's saying. And you know what? That's never the right mindset for a believer. It's never the right thing to think, to say, well, I'll just, I'll just recede from the Lord a little bit. I'll just sort of offer up the burnt offering of my family for a minute. And then all I have to do is just get, get over this hurdle, get over this hum, get through this time, and then everything will be okay. That's not how it works when we follow after the Lord in a walk of faith. Verse 14 says, when Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. This is immediate disaster, just an absolute catastrophe. Now listen, obviously this is not what Abraham wanted, but what did he think was going to happen? He probably had convinced himself that, yeah, people would see her and be interested in her, and they would come to court Sarah, and that he would be able to sort of buy time putting off her suitors and ride out the famine, and then by the time the famine is over, he just you know, doesn't ever settle the marriage negotiations. Because if it was true that she was just his sister and he was the older brother, he would have the say over who she was allowed to marry, and he would be the one negotiating that contract. We see Laban doing this later, right? He does it with one of Abraham's descendants, Jacob. And what does he do? He keeps putting him off, putting him off, putting him off for years, right? 
He puts off Jacob for like 21 years practically of working, 14 years before he can marry the girl he wants to marry, right? And so Abraham clearly thinks he's going to kind of just be able to kick the can down the road, down the road, down the road. And, and by the time it, it, you know, he would have to sign his name on the dotted line, the famine will be over and he'll be able to escape back to Canaan. But he didn't figure, he didn't plan on Pharaoh himself saying, oh yeah, I would like to have Sarah in my group of wives. Because people like Pharaoh, they don't need to negotiate, do they? They don't need to go through contracts, do they? They take what they want by force if necessary. Still, even still, we can't say that Abraham should have been surprised by this turn of events. He should have expected it, or at least he should have recognized that this was a very real possibility. One source explains this. Since Abram's group had many people and animals, they had to be given special permission to live and trade in Egypt. Important economic and political contracts in the ancient world were sometimes finalized by the weaker party giving a woman to the leader of the stronger party. What did you think was gonna happen? What did you think was gonna happen when, when you showed up with this big group with all of these flocks and all of these herds to eat up the resources of the land? Did you think that you were just gonna skate? That you weren't going to have to put your pound of flesh out there? And so we see the, the way that the human heart deceives itself. Abraham has seen only the upside, only the good side, only the, the way that he's gonna save himself from famine and he's not taking a moment to recognize this is what's obviously going to happen. You're obviously gonna damage your relationship with your wife. You're obviously going to damage your relationship with God. You're obviously gonna find yourself in a place that you shouldn't be. You're obviously gonna be cozied up to idolatry and paganism. You're obviously gonna have to interact with the government of Egypt that's going to require things of you that you you do not want to pay. But all that Abraham is thinking is, well, there'll be grass, there'll be grass, there'll be grass. And my sheep and my flocks and my herds and all of that, they will all be okay. Now, this is interesting. This is the first use of the word praise in the Bible. People who know things tell me it's the word hallel. That's where we get the word hallelujah, praise Yahweh, right? And this first usage of the word is the Egyptians praising Sarah, specifically praising her beauty. Now, on a devotional level, something that we're being shown here, the Bible reveals that human beings are made to worship. You must worship something. You're made to do it. You're made to praise. You're made to, to bring an offering of worship from your heart to something. Now, praise in this sense means to exalt, to be deeply thankful for, to find satisfaction in lauding the greatness of something or someone. You and I and everyone else, we are made to praise, but the object of our praise, well, that's up to us. We're allowed to kind of point the, the, tar, the, you know, the barrel of our praise wherever we want and, and praise that thing. And so, when we turn our worship from God as human beings, we invariably end up trying to find our satisfaction in things that cannot last. And by satisfaction, I don't just mean what, what we receive, but the satisfaction of praising that, that exercise of worship that we all have to do. And when we turn away from God who created us and loved us and, and has given us, instilled in us that desire to praise, he is the only true ob object and person worthy of praise, when we turn away from that, 
we invariably try to find that satisfaction in things that cannot last. Things like, you know, temporal beauty or pleasure or status or human achievement. Apart from God, man also tends to worship whatever belongs to someone else. Babies do this. They have their toy. They're very happy with it. They're worshiping that toy. It fills them with joy and satisfaction. And then other baby rumbles in and they have a different toy. It may be a worse toy. It may be a broken toy, but because they have it, well, now this thing that I was sort of praising and, and lauding in my heart gets tossed aside. And I just want that because you have it. And so we see what happens when we don't aim the, the affections of our heart in the proper direction. The only proper direction is that God who made us and loved us. He is the only one worthy of praise. And when we turn away from that, when we stop filling our hearts with thankful great gratitude and adoration towards the Lord, all kinds of bad things happen. All kinds of, of things break in our hearts and break in our lives as we start worshiping these stupid things that don't last. We just start worshiping whatever the guy next to us has and we want to have it instead of him having it. Look at Pharaoh. Do you think Pharaoh really needed one more woman in his harem? No, but when we worship things that are not God, our hearts are drained of satisfaction, drained of thankfulness, and when we worship the Lord, the opposite happens. We're filled up. We're filled up with God's peace and joy and satisfaction and contentment and all of these things that he promises. Verse 16 says, he treated Abram well because of her and Abram acquired flocks and herds and male and female donkeys, male and female slaves and camels. On paper, Abraham is doing great. He really is. He's avoided financial disaster in Canaan his family gets to see an exotic locale. He's added a bunch of capital to his portfolio. His wife won a national beauty contest. He's even on friendly terms with the king himself. This is all just looking really great. But of course, that's all a matter of perspective, right? Because we know what's really going on as readers. We know what's actually important. And so what happens when we read this? We read it and we wince and we say, no, Abraham, no, don't do this. Why? because we recognize what's really true. We recognize that Abraham has made a very serious, very dangerous mistake here. God had made it clear that he, God, wanted to be the sovereign provider for Abraham and his family and his coming descendants. But Abraham must have been worried that God wouldn't actually come through. And so, like the Israelites would again later in 1 Samuel, Abraham decided to get himself a human king to provide for him. Let me find a human king who will provide for me. And what did it cost? We see the same mistake happening in the book of 1 Samuel, where the people of Israel come and say, we're tired of God being our king. We wanna be like the nations, give us a king. And Samuel says, you don't wanna do this. Do you know what this is gonna cost you? We don't care, we don't care, give us a king. That's what we want. The cost was steep. Abraham forfeited his wife. He had made plenty of money, but all of these gains are absolutely polluted. You know, they talk about blood money sometimes or dirty money, dark money, ooh, all this kind of stuff that they talk about. All of these gains that Abraham is receiving here are absolutely tainted and polluted. Warren Wearsby points out that everything he got from Egypt ends up causing him trouble later on. He has too many possessions when he leaves, which leads to strife with Lot and his people. 
He picks up Hagar, the slave in Egypt, who will end up figuring into another sorry misadventure in a few chapters. And we can speculate that the largesse of Egypt awakened in Lot a carnality that would eventually lead him to Sodom, which would lead to a whole bunch of other terrible things. Our choices impact others and they impact our future, sometimes in profound and unforeseeable ways. And this is why we need an eternal navigator. This is why we need the light of the word of God to direct us, a light for our feet and for our path so that we can know where to go because we don't know where we're going otherwise. We may think we do, but we just don't because we are people who only know so much, can only see so much, and tomorrow is not one of those things that we can see. Verse 17 says, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. If Abram wasn't gonna... I just, I'm gonna have to like, you know how they talk about, um, you know, doing the, the hypnosis while you sleep, right? Have you ever heard of that? Like on pop culture, you play a cassette under your thing. I'm just gonna have one that goes, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. Cause I, I can't, I, it bothers me that I keep going back and forth. All right, if Abraham wasn't going to protect his wife, God most certainly would. It was through Sarah that the deliverer would come. And so God made sure that she was safe. There's a contrast between Abraham's selfish focus on the here and now, on the material state of things, and God's great vision of all things. God is concerned for Abraham and for Sarah and their future beyond this famine and the future of their kids and the future of the nation of Israel and the future hope for all of humanity for every generation. God has quite a big picture in mind. So Abraham's over here saying, the sheep, what are we gonna do about the sheep? God's saying, I'm working out a plan that encompasses the whole globe for thousands of years. You're over here worried about a couple of sheep. And, and, and we see this incredible contrast and how that narrow earthly focus on material things leads Abraham into some really gross compromise. Ladies, you want your husband to treat you this way? I don't think so. And I don't think Abraham was the kind of husband that would normally treat his wife this way, but this is what happens when you slide into a mindset that is stuck on earthly things. So when God comes to us as his people and gives us clear directions, they are for very good reasons. Why had God told Abraham to go to the land of promise? He had very good reasons, very specific reasons reasons that mattered. It wasn't just arbitrary. He wasn't just throwing darts at, at the wall. God had a bunch of reasons and they were good reasons. And when he gives us commands, he has very good reasons for it. When God says, I want you married people to stay married. I want you to connect with a local church body. I want you to honor authority. I want you to control your thought life. I want you to forgive people who do wrong against you. When he says these things, it's not because we have to do those things to earn salvation, not at all. That price has already been paid. God gives us commands and confines because he is able to see all of the ramifications of our choices. And he says, I want to fulfill certain good purposes in your life and through your life and for you. And this is the way it must be done. And if you don't go this way, then you are resisting the good work that I wanna do in and through your life. And that's gonna have all kinds of consequences all kinds of ramifications, not just for you, but for the people around you, maybe for the whole world. 
God is so serious about his will for his people that he will, when necessary, reach down from heaven and fight against the earthly obstacles himself. That should astonish us. We laugh at the mythological gods like Zeus and all of these other things. But the reality is, what do we see in the Bible? That there are times where God says, this is so serious, I'm going to reach down and mess these people up so that we can get Abraham and his family back where they're supposed to be. And so he sent fierce plagues on Pharaoh and his house. Now, on one hand, it's nice that the Lord picked up the slack left by Abraham, right? Because when we are faithless, God remains faithful. We talked about this last time. God is so full of compassion and he's full of mercy and he's full of grace and we're not perfect. We're not gonna follow him perfectly. No one's saying that we have to be perfect. We can't be, right? And when we are faithless, God remains faithful. And that is a wonderful thing. And we see God is true and he is faithful and he picked up the slack here. But at the same time, there's a very sad aspect to how this all shakes out. Because God's plan was for Abraham to be a blessing to the people of the world. Instead, because he is out of the will of God, Abraham has become a curse to them. Instead of bringing life to them, he's bringing death. Instead of bringing knowledge of the true God and bringing blessing to them, he's bringing judgment and suffering to them. This is Abraham's fault that this is happening. When Christians stop living a spirit-filled life, when we stop walking by faith according to the truth of God's word, we become a detriment to unbelievers around us. Think of the church at Corinth. Paul points out to them in his first letter that because of the way they were living, because of their unbiblical behavior, they were full of scandal in the news around them. The unbelievers in their city thought they were insane. They were seen as cheats bringing disgrace on the name of Jesus. You think people in the city wanted to go to the church at Corinth? This is a mind blower. We wouldn't go to the church at Corinth, right? Knowing what we knew what was going on in, in the time of 1 Corinthians, and if you moved to Corinth, based on what we know, we're able to pick and choose churches in America, right? There was the only church in town, so we would end it up there. But, but when you read what was going on there, you've been like, oh man, don't go to that church. They got all kinds of stuff going on. And, those, and we're people who love the Lord and want to be involved in fellowship. And the unbelieving world around them was like, oh man, you see these Corinthian Christians are back in court again. They're cheating each other. They're cheating me. Yeah, that guy came by and he did this. Did you hear what they're doing over here? I mean, it was such an abysmal thing. It was driving people away from Jesus. When Christians act in unchristian ways, in unbiblical ways, it drives people away from the Lord. It doesn't entice them to believe. And that's exactly what happened with Pharaoh. Look at verse 18. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and he said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now here's your wife, take her and go. When Pharaoh learned the truth, he had to send for Abraham, meaning Abraham wasn't planning a jailbreak. He wasn't trying to figure out how to fix this mistake. It seems by all accounts, what the text give us that he's fine with what's going on. He traded one famine for a much worse famine. Sure, he had some grass now, but he's in an absolute spiritual famine, a relational famine and an evangelistic famine. All of those things are dead now. All of those things are on just life support. And he's in some real trouble. Pharaoh speaks sharply to Abraham. In the text, Abraham remains silent. He has nothing to say. He has no excuse, no defense. When Pharaoh asks, why? 
why did you do this? He can't, because he would have to say, I was lying to you so I could get your resources for myself. That's a bad look. When we make life decisions, we need to be able to answer why and have our heads held high while we do it. Why are we choosing what we're choosing? Why are we doing what we're doing? If the answer looks like Abraham's, I'm doing this purely out of fear that God won't help me, or I'm doing this for material gain, then we need to turn back to God and see what his choice is for us in the situation. Chances are he's already revealed it to us. He had to Abraham. Abraham just wasn't listening. Verse 20, then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. We're glad they're getting out of Egypt, but this was an embarrassing day. They're being deported, perhaps at the edge of a spear. He says, hey, he's given his men orders. And I think the orders were, get your swords and drive these guys to the border. We don't want them around anymore. So here's the question, what should Abraham have done? It's easy to criticize the mistake when it's laid out for us like this, but we should consider what the correct choice would have been at the start of chapter 12 because that's where we live, right? We live at the start of chapter 12. We're living our lives, we're trying to follow the Lord, and then at some point or another, these pressures or these difficulties or these struggles or these hard things crop up in life, and we have to start making choices. So we live in the beginning of our passage, chapter 12, verse 10. As I said at the beginning, the famine was real, the trouble was serious. And, and if we think about this for a moment, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you know that later on, God will purposefully send his people to Egypt to escape a famine. So what gives? What's the difference? Why is it so wrong for Abraham to go, but it's okay for Jacob and his people to go? How can that help me learn to navigate my own circumstances when I face tough choices? When making decisions, particularly the big life decisions, like we see in this text, we can ask ourselves a couple of questions to help discern the will of God. What has God said and how has God led? In Abraham's case, God had specifically asked him to leave a certain land and go to a certain land, and that was it. And so if you are going to make a significant decision concerning your home life, concerning the community you're a part of, concerning the trajectory of your career, that's, that's fine. No one's saying you can't ever do those things. First, ask yourself, what has God said? Has he given guidelines for your situation? In many cases, he has. That's why we have the word of God, so that we can know how to be parents, how we can be husbands or wives, or how we can be citizens, or how we can be employers or employees, how we can be members of a church, all of these different things. We've been given these guidelines. And then ask, okay, I know what God has said, and now in my specific situation, how has God led? There are a lot of things you could do but could is not the same as should. In Genesis 12, Abraham could go to Egypt, but he shouldn't have. In Genesis 46, Jacob could go to Egypt and he should. God tells him he should. Why? Why should he go? Because in that situation, God came and led Jacob and he told him, don't be afraid to go down because I'm going with you. And so he was leading him down to Egypt in that case. Instead of going to Egypt, what should Abraham have done? We don't know. 
Maybe the Lord would have miraculously provided for him some way. Maybe God would have just opened his eyes to see an oasis of provision like the Lord will do for Hagar in chapter 21. Whatever the right thing to do was, it would not have led to strife with his wife, strife with his nephew, strife with his neighbors, strife with himself. And his choice to go to Egypt did all of those things. And so we can know that it wasn't from the Lord. The next time we see Abraham and Lot, their houses are quarreling. They can't even live together. And the next time we see Sarah, she's angry at God and she gets into a fight with her husband. It's all thanks to this Egypt nonsense. God's way is the way to provision and to peace and to satisfaction and to a thriving life spiritually and relationally and evangelically. And so let's head that way as God's people pursuing the upward call in Christ Jesus.